Disc 6 The bell rang, and the savage, who was impatiently hoping that Helmholtz would come that afternoon, for having at last made up his mind to talk to Helmholtz about Lenina, he could not bear to postpone his confidences a moment longer, jumped up and ran to the door. "'I had a premonition it was you, Helmholtz!' he shouted as he opened. On the threshold, in a white acetate satin sailor suit, and with a round white cap rakishly tilted over her left ear, stood Lenina. "'Oh!' said the savage, as though someone had struck him a heavy blow. Half a gram had been enough to make Lenina forget her fears and her embarrassments. "'Hello, John,' she said, smiling, and walked past him into the room. Automatically, he closed the door and followed her. Lenina sat down. There was a long silence. "'You don't seem very glad to see me, John,' she said at last. "'Not glad?' The savage looked at her reproachfully, then suddenly fell on his knees before her, and, taking Lenina's hand, reverently kissed it. "'Not glad? Oh, if only you knew!' he whispered, and venturing to raise his eyes to her face. "'Admired Lenina,' he went on. "'Indeed, the top of admiration, worth what's dearest in the world.' She smiled at him with a luscious tenderness. "'Oh, you so perfect!' She was leaning towards him with parted lips. "'So perfect, so peerless are created!' Nearer and nearer. "'Of every creature's best!' Still nearer. The savage suddenly scrambled to his feet. "'That's why,' he said, speaking with averted face, "'I wanted to do something first. "'I mean to show you I was worthy of you. "'Not that I could ever really be that.' but at any rate to show I wasn't absolutely unworthy. I wanted to do something. Why should you think it necessary? Lenina began, but left the sentence unfinished. There was a note of irritation in her voice. When one has leant forward, nearer and nearer, with parted lips, only to find oneself quite suddenly, as a clumsy oaf scrambles to his feet, leaning towards nothing at all, well, there is a reason, even with half a gram of soma circulating in one's bloodstream, a genuine reason for annoyance. At Malpace, the savage was incoherently mumbling, you had to bring her the skin of a mountain lion. I mean, when you wanted to marry someone, or else a wolf. There aren't any lions in England, Lenina almost snapped. And even if there were, the savage added with a sudden contemptuous resentment, People would kill them out of helicopters, I suppose, with poison gas or something. I wouldn't do that, Lenina. He squared his shoulders. He ventured to look at her and was met with a stare of annoyed incomprehension. Confused. I'll do anything, he went on, more and more incoherently. Anything you tell me. There be some sports are painful, you know. But their labour, delight in them, sets off. That's what I feel. I mean, I'd sweep the floor if you wanted. But we've got vacuum cleaners here, said Lenina in bewilderment. It isn't necessary. No, of course it isn't necessary. But some kinds of baseness are nobly undergone. I'd like to undergo something nobly, don't you see? But if there are vacuum cleaners... That's not the point! And Epsilon Semimorons to work them, she went on. Well, really, why? Why? But for you, for you, just to show that I... And what on earth vacuum cleaners have got to do with lions? To show how much... Or lions being glad to see me. She was getting more and more exasperated. How much I love you, Lenina, he brought out almost desperately an emblem of the inner tide of startled elation, the blood rushed up into Lenina's cheeks. Do you mean it, John? But I hadn't meant to say so, cried the savage, clasping his hands in a kind of agony. Not until... <laughs> Listen, Lenina, in Malpace people get married. Get what? The irritation had begun to creep back into her voice. What was he talking about now? For always. They make a promise to live together. For always. What a horrible idea. Lenina was genuinely shocked.
outliving beauties outward with a mind that doth renew swifter than blood decays. What? It's like that in Shakespeare, too. If thou dost break her virgin knot before all sanctimonious ceremonies may with full and holy rite. For fort's sake, John, talk sense. I can't understand a word you're saying. First it's vacuum cleaners, then it's knots. You're driving me crazy. She jumped up, and, as though afraid that he might run away from her physically, as well as with his mind, caught him by the wrist. Answer me this question. Do you really like me, or don't you? There was a moment's silence. Then, in a very low voice, I love you more than anything in the world, he said. Then why on earth didn't you say so? she cried, and so intense was her exasperation that she drove her sharp nails into the skin of his wrist. Instead of driveling away about knots and vacuum cleaners and lions, and making me miserable for weeks and weeks. She released his hand and flung it angrily away from her. If I didn't like you so much, she said, I'd be furious with you. And suddenly her arms were around his neck. He felt her lips soft against his own, so deliciously soft, so warm and electric, that inevitably he found himself thinking of the embraces in three weeks in a helicopter. Ooh, ooh, the stereoscopic blonde, and ah, the more than real blackamoor. Horror, horror, horror! He tried to disengage himself, but Lenina tightened her embrace. Why didn't you say so? She whispered, drawing back her face to look at him. Her eyes were tenderly reproachful. The murkiest den, the most opportune place, the voice of conscience thundered poetically. The strongest suggestion our worse a genius can shall never melt mine honour into lust. Never, never, he resolved. You silly boy, she was saying. I wanted you so much, and if you wanted me too, why didn't you? But Leniner, he began protesting, and as she immediately untwined her arms, as she stepped away from him, he thought for a moment that she had taken his unspoken hint. But when she unbuckled her white patent cartridge belt and hung it carefully over the back of a chair, he began to suspect that he had been mistaken. Leniner, he repeated apprehensively. She put her hand to her neck and gave a long vertical pull. Her white sailor's blouse was ripped to the hem. Suspicion condensed into a too, too solid certainty. Lanner, what are you doing? Zip! Zip! Her answer was wordless. She stepped out of her bell-bottom trousers. Her zippy caminics were a pale shell pink. The arch-community songster's golden tea dangled at her breast. For those milk paps that through the window bars bore at men's eyes. The singing, thundering, magical words made her seem doubly dangerous, doubly alluring. Soft, soft, but how piercing, boring and drilling into reason, tunnelling through resolution. The strongest oaths are straw to the fire i' the blood. Be more abstemious or else zip. The rounded pinkness fell apart like a neatly divided apple, a wriggle of the arms, a lifting first of the right foot, then the left. The zippy caminics were lying lifeless and as though deflated on the floor. Still wearing her shoes and socks and her rakishly tilted round white cap, she advanced towards him. Darling, darling, if only you'd said so before. She held out her arms. But instead of also saying, Darling, and holding out his arms, the savage retreated in terror, flapping his hands at her, as though he were trying to scare away some intruding and dangerous animal. Four backward steps, and he was brought to bay against the wall. Sweet, said Lenina, and laying her hands on his shoulders, pressed herself against him. Put your arms round me, she commanded. Hug me till you drug me, honey. 
She too had poetry at her command, knew words that sang and were spells and beat drums. Kiss me. She closed her eyes. She let her voice sink to a sleepy murmur. Kiss me till I'm in a coma. Hug me, honey, snugly. The savage caught her by the wrists, tore her hand from his shoulders, thrust her roughly away at arm's length. Oh, you're hurting me, you're... Oh! She was suddenly silent. Terror had made her forget the pain. Opening her eyes, she had seen his face. No, not his face. A ferocious stranger's, pale, distorted, twitching with some insane, inexplicable fury. Aghast. But what is it, John? she whispered. He did not answer, but only stared into her face with those mad eyes. The hands that held her wrists were trembling. He breathed deeply and irregularly, faint almost to imperceptibility, but appalling. She suddenly heard the grinding of his teeth. What is it? she almost screamed. And, as though awakened by her cry, he caught her by the shoulders and shook her. Whore! he shouted. Whore! Impudent strumpet! Oh, don't, don't! she protested in a voice made grotesquely tremulous by his shaking. Whore! Please! Damned whore! A gram is better! she began. The savage pushed her away with such force that she staggered and fell. Go! he shouted, standing over her menacingly. Get out of my sight or I'll kill you! He clenched his fists. Lenina raised her arms, covered her face. No, please don't, John. Hurry up, quick! One arm still raised, and following his every movement with a terrified eye, she scrambled to her feet, and still crouching, still covering her head, made a dash for the bathroom. The noise of that prodigious slap by which her departure was accelerated was like a pistol shot. Oh! Lenina bounded forward. Safely locked into the bathroom, she had leisure to take stock of her injuries. Standing with her back to the mirror, she twisted her head. Looking over her left shoulder, she could see the imprint of an open hand, standing out distinct and crimson on the pearly flesh. Gingerly, she rubbed the wounded spot. Outside, in the other room, the savage was striding up and down, marching, marching to the drums and music of magical words. The wren goes to it! And the small gilded fly does lecture in my sight. Maddeningly, they rumbled in his ears. The fitchew nor the soiled horse goes to it with a more riotous appetite. Down from the waist they are centers, though women all above. But to the girdle do the gods inherit. Beneath is all the fiends. There's hell, there's darkness, there is the sulphurous pit. Burning, scalding, stench, consumption, fi, 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 pa, fa. Give me an ounce of civet good apothecary to sweeten my imagination. John, ventured a small, ingratiating voice from the bathroom. John. Oh, thou weed, who art so lovely fair and smelt so sweet that the sense aches at thee. Was this most goodly book made to write whore upon? Heaven stops the nose at it. But her perfume still hung about him. His jacket was white with a powder that had scented her velvety body. Impudent strumpet! Impudent strumpet! Impudent strumpet! The inexorable rhythm beat itself out. Impudent! John, do you think I might have my clothes? He picked up the bell-bottomed trousers, the blouse, the zippy kamenics. Open! he ordered, kicking the door. No, I won't. The voice was frightened and defiant. Well, how do you expect me to give them to you? Push them through the ventilator over the door. He did what she suggested and returned to his uneasy pacing of the room. Impudent strumpet! Impudent strumpet! The devil luxury with his fat rump and potato finger! John! He would not answer. Fat rump and potato finger! John! What is it? he asked gruffly. I wonder if you mind giving me my Malthusian belt. 
Lenina sat listening to the footsteps in the other room, wondering, as she listened, how long he was likely to go tramping up and down like that, whether she would have to wait until he left the flat, or if it would be safe, after allowing his madness a reasonable time to subside, to open the bathroom door and make a dash for it. She was interrupted in the midst of these uneasy speculations by the sound of the telephone bell ringing in the other room. Abruptly, the tramping ceased. She heard the voice of the savage parleying with silence. Hello? Yes? If I do not usurp myself, I am. Yes, didn't you hear me say so? Mr. Savage speaking. What? Who's ill? Of course it interests me. But is it serious? Is she really bad? I'll go at once. Not in her rooms any more. Where has she been taken? Oh, my God! What's the address? Three Park Lane, is that it? Three? Thanks. Lenina heard the click of the replaced receiver, then hurrying steps. A door slammed. There was silence. Was he really gone? With an infinity of precautions, she opened the door a quarter of an inch, peeped through the crack, was encouraged by the view of emptiness, opened a little further and put her whole head out, finally tiptoed into the room, stood for a few seconds with a strongly beating heart, listening, listening, then darted to the front door, opened, slipped through, slammed, ran. It was not until she was in the lift and actually dropping down the well that she began to feel herself secure. Chapter 14 The Park Lane Hospital for the Dying was a sixty-story tower of primrose tiles. As the savage stepped out of his taxicopter, a convoy of gaily-coloured aerial hearses rose whirring from the roof and darted away across the park, westward, bound for the Slough Crematorium. At the lift gates, the presiding porter gave him the information he required, and he dropped down to Ward 81, a galloping senility ward, the porter explained, on the seventeenth floor. It was a large room, bright with sunshine and yellow paint, and containing twenty beds, all occupied. Linda was dying in company, in company and with all the modern conveniences. The air was continuously alive with gay synthetic melodies. At the foot of every bed, confronting its moribund occupant, was a television box. Television was left on, a running tap from morning till night. Every quarter of an hour, the prevailing perfume of the room was automatically changed. We try, explained the nurse who had taken charge of the savage at the door, we try to create a thoroughly pleasant atmosphere here, something between a first-class hotel and a feely palace, if you take my meaning. Where is she? asked the savage, ignoring these polite explanations. The nurse was offended. You are in a hurry, she said. Is there any hope? he asked. You mean of her not dying? He nodded. No, of course there isn't. When somebody is sent here, there's no... Startled by the expression of distress on his pale face, she suddenly broke off. Why, whatever's the matter? she asked. She was not accustomed to this kind of thing in visitors. Not that there were many visitors, anyhow, or any reason why there should have been many visitors. You're not feeling ill, are you? He shook his head. She's my mother, he said in a scarcely audible voice. The nurse glanced at him with startled, horrified eyes, then quickly looked away. From throat to temple, she was all one hot blush. Take me to her, said the savage, making an effort to speak in an ordinary tone. Still blushing, she led the way down the ward, faces still fresh and unwithered, for senility galloped so hard that it had no time to age the cheeks, only the heart and brain, turned as they passed. Their progress was followed by the blank, incurious eyes of second infancy. The savage shuddered as he looked. Linda was lying in the last of the long rows of beds, next to the wall. Propped up on pillows, she was watching the semi-finals of the South American Riemann Surface Tennis Championship, 
which were being played in silent and diminished reproduction on the screen of the television box at the foot of the bed. Hither and thither across the square of illumined glass, the little figures noiselessly darted like fish in an aquarium, the silent but agitated inhabitants of another world. Linda looked on, vaguely and uncomprehendingly smiling. Her pale, bloated face wore an expression of imbecile happiness. Every now and then her eyelids closed, and for a few seconds she seemed to be dozing. Then, with a little start, she would wake up again, wake up to the aquarium antics of the tennis champions, to the supervox Wurlitz Ariana rendering of Hug Me Till You Drug Me, Honey, to the warm draught of verbena that came blowing through the ventilator above her head would wake to these things, or rather to a dream of which these things, transformed and embellished by the soma in her blood, were the marvellous constituents, and smile once more her broken and discoloured smile of infantile contentment. "'Well, I must go,' said the nurse. "'I've got my batch of children coming. Besides, there's number three, she pointed up the ward. "'Might go off any minute now. Well,' Make yourself comfortable. She walked briskly away. The savage sat down beside the bed. Linda, he whispered, taking her hand. At the sound of her name, she turned. Her vague eyes brightened with recognition. She squeezed his hand. She smiled. Her lips moved. Then, quite suddenly, her head fell forward. She was asleep. He sat watching her, seeking through the tired flesh, seeking and finding that young, bright face which had stooped over his childhood in Malpace, remembering, and he closed his eyes, her voice, her movements, all the events of their life together. Strapped a cock G to Bunbury T. How beautiful her singing had been! And those childish rhymes, how magically strange and mysterious. A, B, C, vitamin D, the fat's in the liver, the cod's in the sea. He felt the hot tears welling up behind his eyelids as he recalled the words and Linda's voice as she repeated them. And then the reading lessons. The tot is in the pot, the cat is on the mat and the elementary instructions for beta workers in the embryo store, and the long evenings by the fire, or in summertime on the roof of the little house, when she told him those stories about the other place, outside the reservation, that beautiful, beautiful other place, whose memory, as of a heaven, a paradise of goodness and loveliness, he still kept whole and intact, undefiled by contact with the reality of this real London, these actual civilized men and women. A sudden noise of shrill voices made him open his eyes, and, after hastily brushing away the tears, look round. What seemed an interminable stream of identical eight-year-old male twins was pouring into the room. Twin after twin, twin after twin they came, a nightmare. Their faces, their repeated faces, for there was only one between the lot of them, puggishly stared, all nostrils and pale, goggling eyes. Their uniform was khaki. All their mouths hung open. Squealing and chattering, they entered. In a moment, it seemed, the ward was maggoty with them. They swarmed between the beds, clambered over, crawled under, peeped into the television boxes, made faces at the patients. Linda astonished and rather alarmed them. A group stood clustered at the foot of her bed, staring with the frightened and stupid curiosity of animals suddenly confronted by the unknown. Oh, look! Look! They spoke in low, scared voices. Whatever is the matter with her? Why is she so fat? They had never seen a face like hers before, had never seen a face that was not youthful and taut-skinned a body that had ceased to be slim and upright. All these moribund sexagenarians had the appearance of childish girls. At forty-four, Linda seemed, by contrast, a monster of flaccid and distorted senility. 
isn't she awful? came the whispered comments. Look at her teeth. Suddenly, from under the bed, a pug-faced twin popped up between John's chair and the wall and began peering into Linda's sleeping face. I say, he began, but his sentence ended prematurely in a squeal. The savage had seized him by the collar, lifted him clear over the chair, and with a smart box on the ears sent him howling away. His yells brought the head nurse hurrying to the rescue. What have you been doing to him? she demanded fiercely. I won't have you striking the children. Well then, keep them away from this bed. The savage's voice was trembling with indignation. What are these filthy little brats doing here at all? It's disgraceful. Disgraceful? But what do you mean? They're being death-conditioned, and I tell you, she warned him truculently, if I have any more of your interference with their conditioning, I'll send for the porters and have you thrown out. The savage rose to his feet and took a couple of steps towards her. His movements and the expression on his face were so menacing that the nurse fell back in terror. With a great effort, he checked himself and, without speaking, turned away and sat down again by the bed. Reassured, but with a dignity that was a trifle shrill and uncertain, "'I've warned you,' said the nurse, "'so mind.' Still, she led the two inquisitive twins away and made them join in the game of Hunt the Zipper, which had been organised by one of her colleagues at the other end of the room. "'Run along now and have your cup of caffeine solution, dear,' she said to the other nurse. The exercise of authority restored her confidence, made her feel better. "'Now, children,' she called. Linda had stirred uneasily, had opened her eyes for a moment, looked vaguely around, and then once more dropped off to sleep. Sitting beside her, the savage tried hard to recapture his mood of a few minutes before. A, B, C, vitamin D, he repeated to himself, as though the words were a spell that would restore the dead past to life. But the spell was ineffective. Obstinately, the beautiful memories refused to rise. There was only a hateful resurrection of jealousies and ugliness and miseries. Pope, with the blood trickling down from his cut shoulder, and Linda hideously asleep, and the flies buzzing round the spilt mescal on the floor beside the bed, and the boys calling those names as she passed. Ah, no, no. He shut his eyes. He shook his head in strenuous denial of these memories. A, B, C, vitamin D. He tried to think of those times when he sat on her knees, and she put her arms about him and sang over and over again, rocking him, rocking him to sleep. A, B, C, vitamin D, vitamin D, vitamin D. The supervox Wurlitzeriana had risen to a sobbing crescendo, and suddenly the verbena gave place in the scent-circulating system to an intense patchouli. Linda stirred, woke up, stared for a few seconds bewilderedly at the semi-finalist, then, lifting her face, sniffed once or twice at the newly perfumed air, and suddenly smiled, a smile of childish ecstasy. "'Pope,' she murmured and closed her eyes. "'Oh, I do so like it. I do,' she sighed, and let herself sink back into the pillows. "'But, Linda,' the savage spoke imploringly, "'don't you know me?' He had tried so hard, had done his very best. Why wouldn't she allow him to forget?' He squeezed her limp hand almost with violence, as though he would force her to come back from this dream of ignoble pleasures, from these base and hateful memories, back into the present, back into reality, the appalling present, the awful reality, but sublime, but significant, but desperately important, precisely because of the imminence of that which made them so fearful. Don't you know me, Linda? He felt the faint, answering pressure of her hand. The tears started into his eyes. He bent over her and kissed her. 
Her lips moved. Popeye, she whispered again. And it was as though he had a pailful of ordure thrown in his face. Anger suddenly boiled up in him. Balked for the second time, the passion of his grief had found another outlet, was transformed into a passion of agonized rage. But I'm John! he shouted. I'm John! And in his furious misery, he actually caught her by the shoulder and shook her. Linda's eyes fluttered open. She saw him, knew him. John! but situated the real face, the real and violent hands, in an imaginary world, among the inward and private equivalents of Patchouli and the Super Wurlitzer, among the transfigured memories and the strangely transposed sensations that constituted the universe of her dream. She knew him for John, her son, but fancied him an intruder into that paradisal malpace where she had been spending her Soma holiday with Popeye. He was angry because she liked Popeye. He was shaking her because Popeye was there in the bed, as though there was something wrong, as though all civilized people didn't do the same. Everyone belongs to everything. Her voice suddenly died into an almost inaudible, breathless croaking. Her mouth fell open. She made a desperate effort to fill her lungs with air, but it was as though she had forgotten how to breathe. She tried to cry out, but no sound came. Only the terror of her staring eyes revealed what she was suffering. Her hands went to her throat, then clawed at the air, the air she could no longer breathe, the air that for her had ceased to exist. The savage was on his feet, bent over her. "'What is it, Lender? What is it?' His voice was imploring. It was as though he were begging to be reassured. The look she gave him was charged with an unspeakable terror, with terror and, it seemed to him, reproach. She tried to raise herself in bed, but fell back on the pillows. Her face was horribly distorted, her lips blue. The savage turned and ran up the wall. Quick! Quick! he shouted. Quick! Standing in the centre of a ring of zipper-hunting twins, the head nurse looked round. The first moment's astonishment gave place almost instantly to disapproval. Don't shout. Think of the little ones, she said, frowning. You might decondition. But what are you doing? He had broken through the ring. Be careful! A child was yelling. Quick! Quick! He caught her by the sleeve, dragged her after him. Quick! Something's happened! I've killed her! By the time they were back at the end of the ward, Linda was dead. The savage stood for a moment in frozen silence, then fell on his knees beside the bed and, covering his face with his hands, sobbed uncontrollably. The nurse stood irresolute, looking now at the kneeling figure by the bed, the scandalous exhibition, and now, poor children, at the twins who had stopped their hunting of the zipper and were staring from the other end of the ward, staring with all their eyes and nostrils at the shocking scene that was being enacted around bed twenty. Should she speak to him? Try to bring him back to a sense of decency? Remind him of where he was? Of what fatal mischief he might do to these poor innocents? Undoing all their wholesome death conditioning with this disgusting outcry, as though death were something terrible— as though anyone mattered as much as all that. It might give them the most disastrous ideas about the subject, might upset them into reacting in the entirely wrong, the utterly antisocial way. She stepped forward. She touched him on the shoulder. "'Can't you behave?' she said in a low, angry voice. But, looking round, she saw that half a dozen twins were already on their feet and advancing down the ward. The circle was disintegrating." In another moment, no, the risk was too great. The whole group might be put back six or seven months in its conditioning. She hurried back towards her menaced charges. Now, who wants a chocolate eclair? she asked in a loud, cheerful tone. Me! yelled the entire Bokhanovsky group in chorus. Bed twenty was completely forgotten. Oh, 
God, 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 the savage kept repeating to himself. In the chaos of grief and remorse that filled his mind, it was the one articulate word. God, he whispered it aloud. God! Whatever is he saying? said a voice, very near, distinct, and shrill through the warblings of the super Wurlitzer. The savage violently started, and, uncovering his face, looked round. Five khaki twins, each with the stump of a long eclair in his right hand, and their identical faces, variously smeared with liquid chocolate, were standing in a row, puggily goggling at him. They met his eyes, and simultaneously grinned. One of them pointed with his eclair butt. "'Is she dead?' he asked. The savage stared at them for a moment in silence. Then, in silence, he rose to his feet, in silence, slowly walked towards the door. "'Is she dead?' repeated the inquisitive twin, trotting at his side. The savage looked down at him, and still without speaking, pushed him away. The twin fell on the floor and at once began to howl. The savage did not even look round. Chapter 15 The menial staff of the Park Lane Hospital for the Dying consisted of 162 deltas, divided into two Bokanovsky groups of 84 red-headed female and 78 dark dolichocephalic male twins, respectively. At six, when their working day was over, the two groups assembled in the vestibule of the hospital and were served by the deputy sub-bursar with their soma ration. From the lift, the savage stepped out into the midst of them, but his mind was elsewhere, with death, with his grief and his remorse. Mechanically, without consciousness of what he was doing, he began to shoulder his way through the crowd. Who are you pushing? Where do you think you're going? High, low, from a multitude of separate throats, only two voices squeaked or growled. Repeated indefinitely, as though by a train of mirrors, two faces, one a hairless and freckled moon, haloed in orange, the other a thin, beaked bird mask, stubbly with two days' beard, turned angrily towards him. Their words, and in his ribs the sharp nudging of elbows, broke through his unawareness. He woke once more to external reality, looked round him, knew what he saw, knew it with a sinking sense of horror and disgust for the recurrent delirium of his days and nights, the nightmare of swarming indistinguishable sameness, twins, twins, like maggots they had swarmed defilingly over the mystery of Linda's death. Maggots again, but larger, full-grown, they now crawled across his grief and his repentance. He halted, and with bewildered and horrified eyes, stared round him at the khaki mob, in the midst of which, overtopping it by a full head, he stood. How many goodly creatures are there here? The singing words mocked him derisively. How beauteous mankind is, O oh, brave new world! Soma distribution, shouted a loud voice. In good order, please. Hurry up there. A door had been opened, a table and chair carried into the vestibule. The voice was that of a jaunty young Alpha, who had entered carrying a black iron cash box. A murmur of satisfaction went up from the expectant twins. They forgot all about the savage. Their attention was now focused on the black cash box, which the young man had placed on the table and was now in process of unlocking. The lid was lifted. Ooh, said all the 162 simultaneously, as though they were looking at fireworks. The young man took out a handful of tiny pillboxes. Now, he said peremptorily, step forward, please, one at a time and no shoving. One at a time, with no shoving, the twins stepped forward. First two males, then a female, then another male, then three females, then the savage stood looking on. Oh, brave new world, oh, brave new world. In his mind, the singing words seemed to change their tone. 
They had mocked him through his misery and remorse, mocked him with how hideous a note of cynical derision. Fiendishly laughing, they had insisted on the low squalor, the nauseous ugliness of the nightmare. Now, suddenly, they trumpeted a call to arms. Oh, brave new world! Miranda was proclaiming the possibility of loveliness, the possibility of transforming even the nightmare into something fine and noble. Oh, brave new world! It was a challenge, a command. No shoving there now! shouted the deputy subversor in a fury. He slammed down the lid of his cash box. I shall stop the distribution unless I have good behaviour. The deltas muttered, jostled one another a little, and then were still. The threat had been effective. Deprivation of Soma. Appalling thought. That's better, said the young man, and reopened his cash box. Linda had been a slave. Linda had died. Others should live in freedom, and the world be made beautiful. A reparation, a duty, and suddenly it was luminously clear to the savage what he must do. It was as though a shutter had been opened, a curtain drawn back. Now, said the deputy subversor, another khaki female stepped forward. Stop! called the savage in a loud and ringing voice. Stop! pushed his way to the table. The deltas stared at him with astonishment. Ford, said the deputy subversor below his breath. It's the savage. He felt scared. Listen, I beg you cried the savage earnestly. Lend me your ears. He had never spoken in public before, and found it very difficult to express what he wanted to say. Don't take that horrible stuff. It's poison. It's poison. I say, Mr. Savage, said the deputy subversor, smiling propitiatingly, would you mind letting me poison to the soul as well as body? Yes, but let me get on with my distribution, won't you? There's a good fellow. With the cautious tenderness of one who strokes a notoriously vicious animal, he patted the savage's arm. Just let me... Never, cried the savage. But look here, old man. Throw it all away. That's horrible poison. The words, throw it all away, pierced through the enfolding layers of incomprehension to the quick of the Delta's consciousness. An angry murmur went up from the crowd. I come to bring you freedom, said the savage, turning back towards the twins. I come. The deputy subversor heard no more. He had slipped out of the vestibule and was looking up a number in the telephone book. Not in his own rooms, Bernard summed up. Not in mine, not in yours, not at the Aphroditeum, not at the centre or the college. Where can he have got to? Helmholtz shrugged his shoulders. They had come back from their work, expecting to find the savage waiting for them at one or other of their usual meeting places, and there was no sign of the fellow, which was annoying, as they had meant to nip across to Biarritz in Helmholtz's four-seater sportycopter. They'd be late for dinner if he didn't come soon. We'll give him five more minutes, said Helmholtz. If he doesn't turn up by then, we'll... The ringing of the telephone bell interrupted him. He picked up the receiver. Hello, speaking. Then after a long interval of listening, Ford in fliver, he swore. I'll come at once. What is it? Bernard asked. A fellow I know at the Park Lane Hospital, said Helmholtz. The savage is there. Seems to have gone mad. Anyhow, it's urgent. Will you come with me? Together they hurried along the corridor to the lifts. But do you like being slaves? The savage was saying as they entered the hospital. His face was flushed, his eyes bright with ardour and indignation. Do you like being babies? Yes, babies, mewling and puking, he added, exasperated by their bestial stupidity into throwing insults at those he had come to save. The insults bounced off their carapace of thick stupidity. They stared at him with a blank expression of dull and sullen resentment in their eyes. Yes, puking, he fairly shouted. 
grief and remorse, compassion and duty, all were forgotten now, and, as it were, absorbed into an intense, overpowering hatred of these less-than-human monsters. "'Don't you want to be free and men? Don't you even understand what manhood and freedom are?' Rage was making him fluent. The words came easily in a rush. "'Don't you?' he repeated, but got no one to answer his question. "'Very well, then,' he went on grimly. "'I'll teach you. I'll make you be free whether you want to or not.' And, pushing open a window that looked onto the inner court of the hospital, he began to throw the little pillboxes of soma tablets in handfuls out into the area. For a moment the khaki mob was silent, petrified at the spectacle of this wanton sacrilege with amazement and horror. "'He's mad!' whispered Bernard, staring with wide-open eyes. "'They'll kill him! They'll!' A great shout suddenly went up from the mob. A wave of movement drove it menacingly towards the savage. "'Ford, help him!' said Bernard, and averted his eyes. "'Ford helps those who help themselves!' And with a laugh, actually a laugh of exultation, Helmholtz Watson pushed his way through the crowd. "'Free! Free!' the savage shouted, and with one hand continued to throw the soma into the area, while with the other he punched the indistinguishable faces of his assailants. "'Free!' And suddenly there was Helmholtz at his side. "'Good old Helmholtz!' also punching. "'Men at last!' and in the interval also throwing the poison out by handfuls through the open window. Yes, men! Men! And there was no more poison left. He picked up the cash box, showed them its black emptiness. You're free! Howling, the deltas charged with redoubled fury, hesitant on the fringes of the battle. They're done for, said Bernard, and, urged by a sudden impulse, ran forward to help them then thought better of it and halted, then, ashamed, stepped forward again, then again thought better of it, and was standing in an agony of humiliated indecision, thinking that they might be killed if he didn't help them, and that he might be killed if he did, when, Ford be praised, goggle-eyed and swine-snouted in their gas-masks, in ran the police. Bernard dashed to meet them. He waved his arms, and it was action. He was doing something. He shouted, Help! several times, more and more loudly, so as to give himself the illusion of helping. Help! 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 The policemen pushed him out of the way and got on with their work. Three men with spraying machines buckled to their shoulders, pumped thick clouds of soma vapour into the air. Two more were busy round the portable synthetic music box, carrying water pistols charged with a powerful anaesthetic. Four others had pushed their way into the crowd and were methodically laying out, squirt by squirt, the more ferocious of the fighters. "'Quick! Quick!' yelled Bernard. "'They'll be killed if you don't hurry! They'll—' "'Oh!' Annoyed by his chatter, one of the policemen had given him a shot from his water pistol. Bernard stood for a second or two, wombling unsteadily on legs that seemed to have lost their bones, their tendons, their muscles, to have become mere sticks of jelly, and at last not even jelly. Water, he tumbled in a heap on the floor. Suddenly, from out of the synthetic music box, a voice began to speak. The voice of reason, the voice of good feeling. The soundtrack roll was unwinding itself in synthetic anti-riot speech number two, medium strength. Straight from the depths of a non-existent heart, My friends, my friends said the voice so pathetically, with a note of such infinitely tender reproach that, behind their gas-masks, even the policeman's eyes were momentarily dimmed with tears. What is the meaning of this? Why aren't you all being happy and good together? Happy and good, the voice repeated. At peace. At peace. It trembled, sank into a whisper, and momentarily expired. Oh, I do want you to be happy, it began with a yearning earnestness. I do so want you to be good. 
please, please be good and... Two minutes later, the voice and the soma vapor had produced their effect. In tears, the deltas were kissing and hugging one another, half a dozen twins at a time, in a comprehensive embrace. Even Helmholtz and the savage were almost crying. A fresh supply of pillboxes was brought in from the bursary. A new distribution was hastily made, and to the sound of the voice's richly affectionate baritone valedictions, the twins dispersed, blubbering as though their hearts would break. Goodbye, my dearest, dearest friends. Ford keep you. Goodbye, my dearest, dearest friends. Ford keep you. Goodbye, my dearest, dearest. When the last of the deltas had gone, the policeman switched off the current. The angelic voice fell silent. "'Will you come quietly?' asked the sergeant. "'Or must we anaesthetize?' He pointed his water-pistol menacingly. "'Oh, we'll come quietly,' the savage answered, dabbing alternately a cut lip, a scratched neck, and a bitten left hand. Still keeping his handkerchief to his bleeding nose, Helmholtz nodded in confirmation. Awake and having recovered the use of his legs, Bernard had chosen this moment to move as inconspicuously as he could towards the door. "'Oi, you there!' called the sergeant, and a swine-masked policeman hurried across the room and laid a hand on the young man's shoulder. Bernard turned with an expression of indignant innocence. "'Escaping? He hadn't dreamed of such a thing. "'Though what on earth you would want me for?' he said to the sergeant. "'I really can't imagine.' "'You're a friend of the prisoners, aren't you?' "'Well,' said Bernard, and hesitated. "'No, he really couldn't deny it. "'Why shouldn't I be?' he asked. "'Come on, then,' said the sergeant, "'and led the way towards the door and the waiting police car. "'Chapter 16 "'The room into which the three were ushered was the controller's study.' "'His fordship will be down in a moment.' "'The Gamma Butler left them to themselves. "'Helmholtz laughed aloud. <laughs> it's, "'It's more like a caffeine solution party than a trial,' he said, "'and let himself fall into the most luxurious of the pneumatic armchairs. "'Cheer up, Bernard,' he added, "'catching sight of his friend's green, unhappy face. "'But Bernard would not be cheered. "'Without answering, without even looking at Helmholtz,' He went and sat down on the most uncomfortable chair in the room, carefully chosen in the obscure hope of somehow deprecating the wrath of the higher powers. The savage, meanwhile, wandered restlessly round the room, peering with a vague, superficial inquisitiveness at the books in the shelves, at the soundtrack rolls and the reading machine bobbins in their numbered pigeonholes. On the table under the window lay a massive volume bound in limp black leather surrogate and stamped with large golden teeth. He picked it up and opened it. My Life and Work by Our Ford The book had been published at Detroit by the Society for the Propagation of Fordian Knowledge. Idly he turned the pages, read a sentence here, a paragraph there, and had just come to the conclusion that the book didn't interest him when the door opened and the resident world controller for Western Europe walked briskly into the room. Mustafa Mond shook hands with all three of them, but it was to the savage that he addressed himself. "'So you don't much like civilization, Mr. Savage,' he said. The savage looked at him. He had been prepared to lie, to bluster, to remain sullenly unresponsive. But, reassured by the good-humoured intelligence of the controller's face, he decided to tell the truth, straightforwardly. No. He shook his head. Bernard started and looked horrified. What would the controller think? To be labelled as the friend of a man who said he didn't like civilization, said it openly, and of all people, to the controller? It was terrible. But, John, he began. A look from Mustafa Mond reduced him to an abject silence. Of course, the savage went on to admit, there are some very nice things, 
All that music in the air, for instance. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about my ears, and sometimes voices. The savage's face lit up with a sudden pleasure. Have you read it too? he asked. I thought nobody knew about that book here in England. Almost nobody. I'm one of the very few. It's prohibited, you see. But as I make the laws here, I can also break them. With impunity, Mr. Marx, he added, turning to Bernard, which I'm afraid you can't do. Bernard sank into a yet more hopeless misery. But why is it prohibited? asked the savage. In the excitement of meeting a man who had read Shakespeare, he had momentarily forgotten everything else. The controller shrugged his shoulders. Because it's old, that's the chief reason. We haven't any use for old things here. Even when they're beautiful? Particularly when they're beautiful. Beauty's attractive, and we don't want people to be attracted by old things. We want them to like the new ones. But the new ones are so stupid and horrible. Those plays where there's nothing but helicopters flying about and you feel the people kissing. He made a grimace. Goats and monkeys. Only in Othello's words could he find an adequate vehicle for his contempt and hatred. Nice tame animals, anyhow, the controller murmured parenthetically. Why don't you let them see Othello instead? I've told you it's old. Besides, they couldn't understand it. Yes, that was true. He remembered how Helmholtz had laughed at Romeo and Juliet. Well, then, he said after a pause, something new that's like Othello and that they could understand. That's what we've all been wanting to write, said Helmholtz, breaking a long silence. And it's what you never will write, said the controller, because if it were really like Othello, nobody could understand it. However new it might be, and if it were new, it couldn't possibly be like Othello. Why not? Yes, why not? Helmholtz repeated. He too was forgetting the unpleasant realities of the situation. Green with anxiety and apprehension, only Bernard remembered them. The others ignored him. Why not? Because our world is not the same as Othello's world. You can't make flivvers without steel, and you can't make tragedies without social instability. The world's stable now. People are happy. They get what they want, and they never want what they can't get. They're well off. They're safe. They're never ill. They're not afraid of death. They're blissfully ignorant of passion and old age. They're plagued with no mothers or fathers. They've got no wives or children or lovers to feel strongly about. They're so conditioned that they practically can't help behaving as they ought to behave. And if anything goes wrong, there's soma, which you go and chuck out of the window in the name of liberty, Mister Savage. Liberty. <laughs> He laughed. Expecting deltas to know what liberty is, and now expecting them to understand Othello. Oh, my good boy! The savage was silent for a little. All the same, he insisted obstinately, Othello's good. Othello's better than those feelies. Of course it is, the controller agreed. But that's the price we have to pay for stability. You've got to choose between happiness and what people used to call high art. We've sacrificed the high art. We have the feelers and the scent organ instead. But they don't mean anything. They mean themselves. They mean a lot of agreeable sensations to the audience. But they're, they're told by an idiot. The controller laughed. <laughs> You're not being very polite to your friend, Mr. Watson. One of our most distinguished emotional engineers, but he's right," said Helmholtz gloomily, "because it is idiotic writing when there's nothing to say, precisely. But that requires the most enormous ingenuity. You're making flivvers 
out of the absolute minimum of steel, works of art out of practically nothing but pure sensation. The savage shook his head. It all seems to me quite horrible. Of course it does. Actual happiness always looks pretty squalid in comparison with the overcompensations for misery. And, of course, stability isn't nearly so spectacular as instability. And being contented has none of the glamour of a good fight against misfortune, none of the picturesqueness of a struggle with temptation or a fatal overthrow by passion or doubt. Happiness is never grand. I suppose not, said the savage after a silence. But need it be quite so bad as those twins? He passed his hand over his eyes, as though he were trying to wipe away the remembered image of those long rows of identical midgets at the assembling tables, those queued-up twin herds at the entrance to the Brentford monorail station, those human maggots swarming around Linda's bed of death, the endlessly repeated face of his assailants. He looked at his bandaged left hand and shuddered. Horrible! But how useful! I see you don't like our Kokonofsky groups, but I assure you they're the foundation on which everything else is built. They're the gyroscope that stabilizes the rocket plane of state on its unswerving course. The deep voice thrillingly vibrated. The gesticulating hand implied all space and the onrush of the irresistible machine. Mustafa Mon's oratory was almost up to synthetic standards. "'I was wondering,' said the savage, "'why you had them at all, seeing that you can get whatever you want out of those bottles. Why don't you make everybody an Alpha Double Plus while you're about it?' Mustafa Mon laughed. "'Because we have no wish to have our throats cut,' he answered. "'We believe in happiness and stability. "'A society of alphas couldn't fail to be unstable and miserable. "'Imagine a factory staffed by alphas, "'that is to say by separate and unrelated individuals of good heredity "'and conditioned so as to be capable, within limits, "'of making a free choice and assuming responsibilities. "'Imagine it,' he repeated. The savage tried to imagine it, not very successfully. It's an absurdity. An alpha-decanted, alpha-conditioned man would go mad if he had to do epsilon semi-moron work. Go mad, or start smashing things up. Alphas can be completely socialized, but only on condition that you make them do alpha work. Only an Epsilon can be expected to make Epsilon sacrifices, for the good reason that for him they aren't sacrifices. They're the line of least resistance. His conditioning has laid down rails along which he's got to run. He can't help himself. He's foredoomed. Even after decanting, he's still inside a bottle, an invisible bottle of infantile and embryonic fixations. Each one of us, of course the controller meditatively continued, goes through life inside a bottle. But if we happen to be alphas, our bottles are, relatively speaking, enormous. We should suffer acutely if we were confined in a narrower space. You cannot pour upper-caste champagne surrogate into lower-caste bottles. It's obvious, theoretically, but it has also been proved in actual practice. The result of the Cyprus experiment was convincing. What was that? asked the savage. Mustafa Mon smiled. Well, you can call it an experiment in rebottling, if you like. It began in AF 473. The controllers had the island of Cyprus cleared of all its existing inhabitants, and recolonized with a specially prepared batch of 22,000 alphas. All agricultural and industrial equipment was handed over to them, and they were left to manage their own affairs. The results exactly fulfilled all the theoretical predictions. The land wasn't properly worked, there were strikes in all the factories, the laws were set at naught, orders disobeyed. 
all the people detailed for a spell of low-grade work were perpetually intriguing for high-grade jobs, and all the people with high-grade jobs were counter-intriguing at all costs to stay where they were. Within six years, they were having a first-class civil war. When nineteen out of the twenty-two thousand had been killed, the survivors unanimously petitioned the world controllers to resume the government of the island, which they did, and that was the end of the only society of alphas that the world has ever seen. The savage sighed profoundly. The optimum population, said Mustafa Mond, is modelled on the iceberg, eight-ninths below the waterline, one-ninth above. And they're happy below the waterline? Happier than above it. Happier than your friend here, for example, he pointed. In spite of that awful work. Awful? They don't find it so. On the contrary, they like it. It's light. It's childishly simple. No strain on the mind or the muscles. Seven and a half hours of mild, unexhausting labour— and then the soma ration, and games, and unrestricted copulation, and the feelies. What more can they ask for? True, he added, they might ask for shorter hours, and of course we could give them shorter hours. Technically, it would be perfectly simple to reduce all lower-caste working hours to three or four a day. But would they be any the happier for that? No, they wouldn't. The experiment was tried more than a century and a half ago. The whole of Ireland was put on to the four-hour day. What was the result? Unrest and a large increase in the consumption of soma, that was all. Those three and a half hours of extra leisure were so far from being a source of happiness that people felt constrained to take a holiday from them. The inventions office is stuffed with plans for labour-saving processes— thousands of them. Mustafa Mond made a lavish gesture. And why don't we put them into execution? For the sake of the labourers. It would be sheer cruelty to afflict them with excessive leisure. It's the same with agriculture. We could synthesise every morsel of food if we wanted to, but we don't. We prefer to keep a third of the population on the land, for their own sakes, because— it takes longer to get food out of the land than out of a factory. Besides, we have our stability to think of. We don't want to change. Every change is a menace to stability. That's another reason why we're so cheery of applying new inventions. Every discovery in pure science is potentially subversive. Even science must sometimes be treated as a possible enemy, yes. Even science. End of Disc 6